because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 25 to 34 as we continue our study on the ser- in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. So turn to page 860 if you don't have a Bible, page 860 on the Pew Bible, the black hardcover in front of you. Um, turn to page 860, that's Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 25 to 34. Six is the big number, that's a chapter number, and verses 25 to 34 are the small numbers if this is your first time looking at a Bible. Hear the word of God from Matthew chapter 6, beginning, beginning in verse 25 to the end of the chapter. Jesus continues his sermon saying, actually I'll start in verse 24 because it gives the context. No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food? And the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why? Why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't, won't he do much more for you? You of little faith? So, don't worry. saying, what will we eat? Or, what will we drink? Or, what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Father, we pray now that the word of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, the most glorious of all in the universe. We pray that we would have eyes to see his glory, ears to hear of his majesty, and feet to trust in his scepter, in his direction, in his rule as our king. Father, soften our hearts. Guard us from distraction as Satan would seek to take this word and Pluck it out of our hearts and minds so that it doesn't settle on our hearts. 
Guard us from the worries of this world and from the trials and pressures of this world so that your word might bear fruit in our lives. Help us now. Give us discernment. Help us to internalize the divine rationale, the divine reasons given us here as to why we must stop worrying. In Jesus' name we ask for this miracle. Amen. What are you worried about? What are, you, what are you worried about these days? Today, actually today, this morning. What are you worried about? Everyone has concerns, and everyone at times worries. Worries. We worry, and we move from worry to worry day to day, and we can't even remember the worries we had a year ago. Can you remember the worries you had 52 Sundays ago, or 30 Sundays ago, or even six Sundays ago? Do you remember what you were, what you were worrying about then? Most of you don't. What are you worrying about now? I'm sure you're, you're, you're aware of that. Currently, for myself, I worry about, at least when I was writing the sermon, how my kids will turn out as they get older. I'm worried about where this church will go here in our lifetime and past our lifetime. I'm worried about whether I and my wife will have enough savings in retirement so that our kids, so that our kids don't have to worry about us. I don't want to think about that anymore than I have to because that is a big worry. And I even worry sometimes as a lesser worry that will, will my wife and I, will we ever own a house? Part of our financial security for the future. Will we own a house? Worries come and go. What are your worries? Everybody worries. And the reason we're tempted to worry all the time is because we live in a broken world, a sin-cursed world. Our health is not guaranteed. Our physical health, our emotional health, our mental health, even our spiritual health isn't guaranteed. Now, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He'll get you to the finish line if you're truly a Christian, but it, your, your spiritual flourishing, your, your spiritual growth just going up like this and always ever increasing is not guaranteed. There are people who are more mature five years ago than they are today spiritually and 10 years ago than they are today. So even that's not guaranteed. Our money has wings, doesn't it? Just flies away. Where where that money go? Our economy can crash. Our relationships can sour and spoil. And our local church can die. Jesus can remove the lampstand from our local church. Now, the main command in Matthew 6, verses 25 to 34 is crystal clear. It's repeated several times. It's don't what? Don't. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. What does it mean not to worry or not to, not to be anxious? Now, he's not even saying just don't ever do it. He's saying stop worrying. The assumption is that you're already overwhelmed with worry. Stop worrying. Stop being anxious. Stop being over-concerned about the future. That's what we, we could define worry as being over-concerned about the future. Don't let worry, don't let this over-concern captivate your state of mind and the state of your emotions. Now, 
just think about this out loud. If you're over-concerned by your worries of the future, then you are under-concerned about the things God wants you to be concerned with. See why worrying is a problem? Worrying causes you, worrying is being over-concerned with some things to the point that you are under-concerned with the things that you ought to be concerned about and focused on. Worry takes your focus away. It divides your focus and distracts you from what you should be focused on. And in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5, I'll just remind you, in Matthew 5 verse 20, Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the main point of the Sermon on the Mount, that you must seek the kingdom and seek surpassing righteousness so that you enter the kingdom of God. If you don't have surpassing righteousness, if your life is not characterized by a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees and the pagans, then you're not a Christian and you won't enter the kingdom of God. You could play the religious game, you could play the church game, you could play the preacher's game, I could play the preacher's game, but if my life does not, is not characterized by the surpassing righteousness of God transforming my life by His grace, then I'm not a Christian. And one of the ways you can tell a true Christian, one of the ways you can see God's work actively functioning in somebody's life is on how much they worry. What are they concerned about? Are they over-concerned about what they'll eat, what they'll drink, and what they'll wear? Are they over-concerned about the things of this earth? And are they under-concerned about the things of God? Or are they rightly seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? So how do we, how do, we do this? How do we stop worrying? Well, one solution, I don't suggest this one, is to sing the song by the philosopher, is it Brian McFerrin? I don't remember his first name. Is it Brian McFerrin? Bobby McFerrin? Here's a, here, I'll quote him now. Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry, be happy. In every life, we have some trouble, but when you worry, you make it double. So don't worry, be happy. Ain't got no place to lay your head? Somebody came and took your bed. Don't worry, be happy. The landlord says your rent is late. He may have to litigate. Solution, don't worry, be happy. Ain't got no cash, ain't got no style, ain't got no gal to make you smile. Don't worry, be happy. Because when you worry, your face will frown and that will bring everybody down. So don't worry, be happy. Now there is this song I wrote. I hope you learned it note for note. Like good little children, don't worry, be happy. Now listen to what I said. In, you, in your life, expect some trouble. When you worry, you'll make it double. So don't worry, be happy, be happy now. I listened to that song this week. It's a, it's a nice song. I mean, it, it uplifts your spirit, I think. It has for mine. But I don't know if that really solves the problem, though, right? It's not strong enough. I mean, you can listen to that song, but the landlord will still litigate, right? <laughs> and your cash is gone, and you're still lonely. So, um, so the question here is, for us, is will worry dominate our lives? Will we ever learn to stop worrying? Is that even possible? It gets complicated, because then we start to even, now that I'm talking about worrying, 
You might even start worrying about worrying. I'm worried that I'll keep worrying. We're just complicating things. Well, Jesus helps us here. Jesus tells us to stop worrying, and he gives us eight compelling reasons to stop worrying and seek his kingdom. Okay? Eight compelling reasons to stop worrying. So here's the main goal. The main goal is for you to internalize, internalize these eight reasons so that you would stop worrying and seek first God's kingdom. Okay? Internalize these eight reasons. Now I got 45 minutes for eight reasons. So here we go. I'm going to go fast. Not going to spend a lot of time on application. We're just going to hit them as we go through text. So let's, let's go back to Matthew 6. Begin verse 25. Let's read it again. Therefore, Jesus says, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. Or about your body, what you will wear. Now here's the first reason. It's in verse 25, the very first word. What's the very first word of verse 25? Say it out loud. Therefore. What is the therefore, therefore? It's there to point you to the previous section. No one can serve two masters. It's impossible. Therefore, because you can't serve two masters, don't worry. There's a reason. Don't worry because you can only serve one master. Or the way I wrote it here in my notes, don't worry be, or stop worrying because you are enslaved to only one master. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't really give me any power, PJ. If, okay, I only have one master. That doesn't give, I don't feel any more strength to stop worrying. Well, let me explain. The point last week was store up your treasures not on earth, but where? In heaven. And the third reason was because um, it, uh, where your treasure is, your treasure displays your God. That was the, the last point of last week's message. Your treasure displays your God. And if your God is money or the things of this earth, then you will worry. Because money is insecure. If, you're, if your God is the treasure of relationships with other people, that's insecure. And so you will worry. So if your master is a God of this world, an idol, you will worry. But you don't have to worry. You can stop worrying because you are enslaved to the true God. And because you're enslaved to this God, you are secure. Stop worrying if Jesus is your God. If God is your master, your king, then don't worry. If money is your master or earthly treasures on, are, are your master, then you will worry. If health is your master, is your health secure forever, your physical health? No. If health is your master, you will worry because you serve a master that cannot secure you. But because you're enslaved to God, don't worry. Now, for a long season, if you're a Christian, you could look like you're you're serving God, and you're actually serving another master. You could only have one. You remember Judas, one of the 12 disciples? For a long season of his life, it looked like he was, he was under, uh, he had two concerns. He had concern for money and to be part of the kingdom, and he had a concern for Jesus. He, he, he said he was devoted to Jesus. Now, when push came to shove, and he had to choose between the two, which one did he choose? Money instead of Jesus. Once he saw that Jesus was going to die, he's like, I'm not going to be out in a kingdom with a dead, dead Messiah, so I'm, I'm out here. He pulls the parachute and, and, and abandons ship and takes the escape route and says, I'll take the 30 pieces of silver, thank you very much. Because the whole time, now, so who was Judas's true master? It was money and not Jesus. So, when Jesus. so now, let's just take this back to the idea of worrying. So now imagine following Judas around, following Jesus, 
and Jesus starts predicting that he's going to die. What does that put in Judas' heart? Worry. Because Jesus is not his king. He doesn't trust Jesus. He wants what Jesus can give him, namely a place in the kingdom. And if he can't get that, he'll take 30 pieces of silver. In other words, Judas wanted to use Jesus for his true treasure. And that's how a lot of Christians are. They say they're Christian, they say they love Jesus, but only if Jesus will get them to get their health secure or get their family right or get them a secure financial future, then I'll take Jesus. But if Jesus won't give me that, I'll push Jesus to the side and I'll figure out a way to get it myself, right? So your treasure determines your master and your master determines whether you're worried or not. Are you worrying? Could it be that you're not really trusting Jesus as your true master? That's the first reason. Don't stop worrying because you're enslaved to God, not earthly masters. Second reason, look at verse 25 again. He says, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. And here's the second reason. Isn't your life more than food and the body more than clothing? What's the answer to that? Yes or no? Is, the li is, is life more than food? Yes or no? Is the body more than clothing? Yes or no? Yes, our bodies are significant, right? It's not just about the clothes you wear. Our bodies actually are made by God and are what Paul calls the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are sacred. And our life, it's not just about what you eat and what you drink. In other words, life is more than food or drink. Life is more than money. Life is more than clothes. Remember the man last week who stored up all his crops for his big retirement in, in barns? And then, and then he, he was judged by God and he died. He, started, he realized at that point, life isn't about building bigger barns. Life is about taking all of your treasures and using it to store up treasures in heaven. And to love and serve people for the glory of God. That's what life is about. Or to put it another way... Going back to Genesis 1, what is life about? If you're made in the image of God, be fruitful, multiply, fill what? Fill the earth and subdue it, rule over it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky. You are valuable and you were made for greatness. The point here is you are made for greatness. God has a design for humanity. Humans are made for more than just eating and drinking. You're made mo for more than just staying healthy. You're made for more than just having kids that, that end up okay. You're made for more than what you wear. You're made to image God in this world. So the second reason you should stop worrying is because you are made for greatness. You're made for greatness. An average human being is great in this world because they're made in the image of God. And a Christian, Jesus even said, the least in the kingdom is the greatest. So if you look at another Christian, realize that they are made for greatness. Satan wants you to have a lower self-reflection or even a self-esteem. I know self-esteem can be taken into prideful, sinful directions. I'm not going there. But there is a healthy self-esteem. You are in the image of God. Life is more than just what you wear and what you eat and your job and your tasks. Life is about reflecting God as an image bearer. As you're fruitful, as you multiply, as you fill this earth, and as you rule in a way over this earth that reflects God's rule over this earth. We were made for more. So don't worry. Stop worrying. I wonder if this is why shopping feels so good. Why does shopping feel so good? 
Now, buying new things, um, you, it could feel good in a wrong way. It could also feel good in a right way. This is not a theology of shopping, though there is a place for that. Maybe go to Matthew 6, 33, and you'll, you'll, you'll start on your way. There is, I'm not saying, I'm not against shopping. But oftentimes, the wrong reason for shopping is when it makes you feel good in a way that is detached and disconnected from God and his kingdom. It becomes a substitute comfort for God. So instead of finding comfort in God when you're worried, you find comfort in the new shiny thing you have. And so Jesus is saying, you're made for more than the shiny things you buy. You're made for, for more than the, the, the new things you buy online or in, in the store. That isn't your final comfort. It's not even your purpose in life. You're made for greatness. You're made in my image, God says. One song years ago trivialized the, uh, the, the, um, um, the marriage bed and sexuality. God made us sexual beings. And one song trivialized that and disconnected from God by singing, you and me, baby ain't nothing but mammals. Have you heard this song before? So let's do it as they do on the Discovery Channel. Now, it's trivializing sexual intimacy. But if you read the Song of Solomon, and you're familiar with Genesis 1:28, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, sexual intimacy is sacred, is it not? It is sacred. It is holy. It's, it, it's made for a bigger purpose. You're not made just for clothes or food or sexual intimacy or pleasures of this world. All of those things can serve the bigger purpose that God designed them for. And if you realize that you're made for greatness, then you need not worry over these earthly things. We're more than mammals. That's the second reason. So first, if you're going to internalize these eight reasons, reason number one, you're enslaved to God. Reason number two, you're made for greatness. Reason number three, you are valuable. Stop worrying because you are valuable. Look at verse 26. Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? What's the answer to that? Are you worth more than birds, yes or no? Yes, you're, you're more valuable than birds. And what does God do with birds? God feeds the birds. Why? Because he values the birds. God values birds. Sometimes when I'm wanting to aggravate my wife, I'll remind her of foolish things I did when I was younger. Like, I guess it's illegal, right? It's illegal to kill a bird with a BB gun. Or um, pop rocks? Have you? Is that true? I'm not even sure if that's true. Pop rocks for pigeons? I don't know. Um, but 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 when I when I try to aggravate my wife with with that story, she'll always be like, you know, I, I could actually rile her up and just be like, no, don't do that. Why would you do that? Now there's a reason why she's right and I'm wrong in that argument because God values birds. They're not humans. They're not as valuable as humans, but they're valuable. God values them. So what does He do? He feeds them. He feeds birds. You know, when you wake up in the morning and you hear the birds outside, stop and think about this verse again. When you hear the birds chirping in the morning, just remember, Father, you love these birds. The reason why they have life and they're able to chirp is because you fed them yesterday. And you're going to feed them today. And I'm more valuable than a bird. You care about them, you care about me. So worship God when you hear the birds chirping in the morning. Just stop, pause, and think. You, birds are valuable to God. He feeds them, and you're more valuable than birds. 
So what does that mean? God will take care of your words, stop your, your, your needs. Stop worrying. God will take care of your needs. So that's reason number three. Okay, you guys tracking so far? Reason number one, why should you stop worrying? Because God is your master, not earthly masters. Second reason, you're made for greatness. You're not just made for these earthly needs. Third reason, you're more valuable than birds. Fourth reason why you should stop worrying, verse 27, let's read on. Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? Answer yes or no. Can anyone add to his lifespan one moment by worrying? Yes or no? No, okay. So here's the third reason why you should stop worrying is because you are sensible. Because you're sensible. Or, to put it another way, because it makes no sense to worry. Worrying is useless, right? It, it, how, much, um, how much does it add to your life? Nothing. Even, even McFerrin, Bobby McFerrin got this point, right? In every life we have some trouble, but when you worry, you make it double. It's pointless. It's useless to worry. He even said, when you worry, your face will frown, and that will bring everybody down. So at the very, so he has some reasons in this song. Two common grace, sensible reasons. Worrying does nothing. It just doubles your trouble. So stop it. And it only brings people down. So stop it. At least he gives you two reasons. He shows you two reasons why it does not make sense to worry. Now, literally here in the Greek, Jesus is saying, you can't add one cubit to your life or one cubit to your height. So the literal translation would, would, would be Jesus saying, um, what, if you're worrying, or let me read verse 27 again, can you add even one cubit, 18 inches to your height by worrying? Can you get taller by worrying? No. Now, I think it's a good translation to say, can you add a, a span to your life? Because Jesus is not saying um, that you can literally grow 18 inches taller. And most of us, that wouldn't solve any of our worries anyways, right? Like, oh man, if I was 18 inches taller, then that would be really cool. Nobody, I mean, very, unless you're really, really short, no one really says that that will solve my problem. So the literal translation doesn't work here. He, Jesus means it figurative. He's not saying, can I add 18 inches to my height? He's saying, can I extend my life by worrying? And the answer you guys said is no. Worrying doesn't make your life longer. Actually, if you are dominated by worry, it can actually make your life shorter, Cause high blood pressure. Now, you brothers and sisters are sensible people. Worry only breeds more worry. There's nothing else it produces but more worry. Worry doesn't motivate you toward the right direction and action. All worry does is paralyze you. It distracts you. Worry adds nothing to even solving the problem in front of you. So focus on God's kingdom and his righteousness. Now, I need to make a distinction here. I was going to make it at the end, but I'll do it now. I'm distinguishing between concerns and worries. Concerns, you should have concerns. But when you become over-concerned with your concerns, we call that worry. That's the sin that Jesus is telling you to stop doing. Not stop having concerns. Yes, be concerned about your health. Of course. Be concerned about your kids. Be concerned about finances. Be concerned about, about life and death and your spiritual state. Of course, be concerned. But don't be over-concerned. When you're over-concerned, you're worried, and that adds zero to your life. It adds nothing to your life. It only distracts you from actually tackling the concerns God has for you. I hope that makes sense. 
So that's the fourth reason why you are to stop worrying. So number one, stop worrying because you're enslaved to God, not earthly things. Number two, stop worrying because you're made for greatness. Number three, stop worrying because you're more valuable than birds. Number four, stop worrying because you're sensible and it makes no sense to worry. It adds nothing to your life. It only detracts. Fifth reason why you are to stop worrying, verses 28 to 30. Jesus continues. Look at verse 28. And why do you worry about clothes? Observe the wildflowers of the field. Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. Now, he's talking about wildflowers, not the ones that are cultivated. Just nobody does anything to them. They're just wildflowers. They don't labor or spin thread. What did the wildflowers do to get there? Nothing. They just got there. God just brought them up. And then Jesus gives us the point here. Observe, or in verse... In verse 29, yet I tell you that not even Solomon, the greatest of all Israel's kings in terms of splendor, not even Solomon in all his splendor and all his glory was adorned like one of these wildflowers. Wow. God clothes the wildflowers even more than Solomon. And here's the point, verse 30. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, now are you worth more than the grass of the field? Yes. Are you worth more than wildflowers? Yes. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, here it is, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So here's the point. God, if God does things for the grass, will God do things for you? Yes or no? Yes. So here's the, third, the fifth reason. Because you are served. Because you are served by God. God will do things for you. He does things for wildflowers. He does things for grass. He does things for birds. He will do things for you. God serves you. So the fifth reason why we must not worry, why we must stop worrying, is because you are served by God. Won't he do much more for you? God acts for you. He clothes you. He serves you. Remember Jesus in Mark 10, 45, 44 and 45? The son of man. Does that sound weird that I say that God serves you? Aren't we his servants? Aren't we supposed to serve him? Not according to Jesus. At least not what he says in Mark 10, 44 and 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? Serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You will never outserve God. Now, you are to serve God, but you serve God by receiving from God and reflecting back to God. But you receiving from God is God serving you. Now, you're never God's master. He's our master. But don't make, it, don't make a mistake about this. God serves you. God serves you. He clothes the grass of the field. He serves the grass of the field. He clothes wildflowers. He serves wildflowers. And you're more, worth more than them. God serves you. God acts for you. And the greatest clue of God serving you, like I just quoted, is Jesus Christ saying, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus dying on the cross for your sins proves that God serves you. Now, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian here today, this proves that God serves you. If you're not a Christian and you're here today... God offers you the gift of salvation, that you can be forgiven of your sins and have eternal life with him forever. You know why God offers that to you? Because Jesus came to serve you. Jesus died for sinners. He died for you to give you the opportunity to repent from your sins and trust in him. This is the message that Christians call the gospel, the good news. The good news starts with bad news. And the bad news is that even though God created you in his image, you have rebelled against God. You have wanted to use God for your own kingdom, like Chris led us in confessing, rather than 
using the tools of this world to serve God in his kingdom. We have rebelled against God, and the wages of sin is death in hell. The penalty for our sin is death. But the good news is that Christ came not to be served, but to serve, to die on the cross for your sins after living the life you should have lived. He died on the cross for your sins, and he rose from the dead so that if you would repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, you would be saved, forgiven, given eternal life. So if you're not a Christian, Jesus is inviting you this morning through my word to be saved, to have forgiveness and salvation because he died for you and rose for you. So come to him, call on to him because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, for Christians, if Jesus clothes the grass of the field and the wildflowers, for Christians, this argument that, that Jesus is using here is from the lesser to the greater. If he cares for grass, you're worth more than grass. The ultimate lesser to greater argument is in Romans 8.32. Have you heard Romans 8.32? Let me quote it to you. Romans 8.32 says this. If he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, he's talking to Christians now. I already talked to the non-Christians. I'm talking to Christians now. If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him grant us everything we need? If, if Jesus gave you a son, I mean, sorry, if Jesus gave you a son, that's not right. If God the Father gave you his son, Jesus, if God gave you Jesus, would God withhold the health that you need for, for today? Would God withhold the clothes you need? No. Will he withhold the food you need? No. He, if he gave you Jesus, which is the hardest thing for him to give, he'll give you everything lesser than Jesus, which is all the things that you're tempted to worry about. So the point is, and that's, that's why Jesus says here, how much more will he do for you, or won't he do much more for you? And then he, he, he Jesus actually calls us a name here. You of little what? Faith. You little faith people. That's what he calls you. It's one word there. The little, the little believers. You're a little believer. If God clothes the grass, won't he clothe you, little believers? Those, those people with little, little faith, little belief? So trust him. The question is, do you trust him? Do you trust that God will take care of you? That's the issue when we're talking about stopping worrying. God's commitment to act and serve you is not in question, right? God will serve you. God will love you. God will care for you. God is for you, not against you. That's not in question. That's not in danger. The question is, do you trust him? Do you trust his love? Do you trust his care? Do you trust his wisdom in the middle of your trials, in the middle of your tests, in the middle of your concerns that are vying to become worry? Will you trust God or become overly concerned? So, Five reasons so far on why you need to stop worrying. Number one, you're enslaved to God, if you're taking notes. Number two, you're made for greatness. Number three, you're more valuable than birds. Number four, you're sensible. Number five, you are served. Number six, look at verse 31 and 32. Verses 31 and 32. So Jesus says, so don't worry saying, what will, you, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will, what will we wear? Verse 32. Why should we not worry? Here's the reason, verse 32. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. 
Here's the sixth reason why you need to stop worrying. Because God, because you're known. You are known. God knows you. He not only knows your name and how many hairs are on your head or are no longer on your head, in my case and others. He knows your needs. He knows your needs, so you don't need to act like a pagan. We're not like pagans who, need, who, who, who believe that, they need, that God needs to be reminded of what they needed. Or that God needs to be cajoled and manipulated to meet their needs. God, I went to church every year, every, every, every week for, for 10 years. You owe me. You, you owe me health. You owe me um, clothes. You owe me financial security. You owe me something because I did this for you. That's how pagans think. So now in Jesus' time, most people, except for the Jews, were polytheistic, which means they believed in many gods. And so if, if your kids were doing bad in education, you would go take some, take some um, of your, your livestock. You'd make a sacrifice to the god of education so that your kids would do well in school. And if you weren't doing well financially, you'd go to the god of finances and go make a sacrifice to the god of finances because you could manipulate him by your, by your sacrifice to give you more money. Or if, if you were... Um, if you wanted love or your love life was failing, then you'd go to, is it Aphrodite, the Greek god, the goddess of love, and you'd make a sacrifice to Aphrodite. And if you made a sacrifice to her, then she would, you, you would now manipulate her, and now she owes you flourishing love in your love life. And so the way pagans interact with God is, what can I do to force God or twist God's arm so that he meets my needs and takes away my worries? That's how pagans think. That's how people who don't have a Bible think. That's how people who don't know the love of God in Jesus Christ think. That's how people who think that God is limited in his knowledge think. God isn't for me. God doesn't know my needs. God doesn't want to help me, but if I could do enough good things, then maybe he'll start to help me. And Jesus says, stop, stop, stop worrying. God knows you. You are known by God. You are loved by God. God knows your needs. You don't have to convince a cranky, stingy God to meet your needs. You are known by this God, and he wants to meet your needs. He cares about you. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14 says this. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. God knows your frailty. God knows, God knows your weaknesses. God knows your temptations. God knows your burdens. God knows your concerns. He knows your responsibilities. And you don't have to twist his arm to loving and caring for you. You are known by God. Do you remember the 12 spies? Some of you know this story. If, if you're not familiar with the story in the Old Testament, there were 12 spy, spies in Numbers 13 and 14. God promised that when they go into the land, so they, they were saved from Egypt. They were redeemed out of Egypt by the 10 plagues that God used to redeem Israel out of Egypt. They went through the wilderness. They got to the land, the promised land. And it's the land flowing of, with milk and honey. They're, gonna, they're supposed to live happily ever after in this land. And when they got up to the land, they sent 12 spies into the land to see if, um, to, to scout out the land and scout the enemy. So the 12 spies go into the land and they come back to give a report. And they say, man, this land is awesome. It is flowing with milk and honey. But 10 people said, or 12 of them said, there is a problem. The, the people there are giants. 
and they will crush us. Our army is nothing compared to their army. We're going to die if we fight. And all, all, all 12 said, yep, those, that army is big and intimidating. And 10 of them said, we're going to die. And they started being overly concerned. Now, is it a concern that you're going to fight some giants? Yeah, that should be a concern, right? It's okay to have a concern about that. But when you become overly concerned with that, then they said, we can't do it. We're going to die. We need to turn around and go back to Egypt. But two of them said, no, 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 wait, hold on. God said, God said, God knows our need. God knows they're bigger than us. God knows they're stronger than us. But God knows our need. We must not turn around. We must stay here and fight because God will fight with us and for us, and he will give us the victory. We are known by God. We don't need to worry. That's the rationale. Now, in the story, the ten won rather than the two, and so God judged Israel for that, and they were to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And in their 40 years in the wilderness, this is what happens when you worry and you serve other gods. You start to sound like the ten. And the ten is what the whole assembly of Israel sounded like when they accused God and Moses of bringing them out of Egypt to what? Do you remember this complaint? You brought us out here to kill us. God, I know why you brought me in this trial. You're against me. You want to kill me, God. You don't know my needs. That is the heart. That's when, when worry multiplies and it has that exponential effect in your life. You actually not only turn against, you're not only consumed by worry, you actually start to turn against God. God, you're just here to kill me. That's crazy that they would talk that way. So we must remember and internalize the fact that we are known by God. God knows our needs and he cares about us. All right, so the six reasons why you should stop worrying because you're enslaved to God, you're made for greatness, you're more valuable than birds, you're sensible, you are served, and you are known. A seventh reason why you should stop worrying, because you are supplied. You, most of you don't even need to turn back to your Bible to look at this, because you have it memorized, right? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, okay, that's not the reason yet, and all these things will be added unto you, King James Version, right? Provided for you, CSB, either way, the, the, the point is the same, that God supplies your needs. Why should you stop worrying? Because you are supplied. You're taken care of. You're provided for. All these things will be added to you. God will supply your needs. As Paul said in Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God knows your needs. He cares about you, and he will actually supply your needs. Let's go to the eighth reason. Eighth and last reason here. Why should you, well, let, let me just recap again, why should you stop worrying? Because you're enslaved to God, you're made for greatness, you're more valuable than birds, you're sensible, you're served, you're known, you're supplied. And lastly, and here's where we're going to have, spend some time on application. Why should you stop worrying? Because you are responsible. You are responsible. You have certain responsibilities in your life. You don't have time to worry because you're responsible for some things. So focus on your responsibilities. Look at verse 34. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Why? Because tomorrow will worry what? About itself. Each day has enough what? Here's a key word. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Did someone say sorrow? Maybe another version has sorrow. Um, 
Each day has enough trouble of its own. Today has enough trouble of its own. Now, notice this. When God is telling you to stop worrying, he's not telling you to stop having trouble. You will have trouble. You will have concerns. You will have trials. But you don't need to worry in them. But the point here, at least my first point here, is that God does not eliminate trouble from our lives. Instead, he provides for us in our trouble. He meets us in our mess. He directs us in our difficulties toward his kingdom and towards his righteousness. So God does not eliminate difficulty, does not eliminate mess, he does not eliminate trouble. Because the point of life is not to be trouble-free. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. This is important if you're going to fight worrying. The point of life is not to be trouble-free. The point of life is not to be concern-free. Because if that was the point of life, then you would never, you would always worry. Because there always is trouble. Life is not about eliminating troubles and concerns in your life. What is life about then? Life is about, to go back to Matthew 6, 33, life is about seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness in your troubles and your concerns. So in other words, do you want to seek God and his righteousness? Yes or no? If you do, here's God's gift to help you. Trouble. God gives you your troubles as a platform to stand on as you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And if you keep complaining that you have a platform, you keep worrying about the platform you have rather than standing on it and seeking first his kingdom, you're not accomplishing the mission. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You have certain troubles that God has given you where you're to be seeking God in those troubles and in those concerns. So don't worry about tomorrow's troubles. They're going to come, and you'll have that platform to stand on tomorrow. You got some trouble six months from now? Great. When, that, when those six months come, he'll give you the platform and the strength to stand on him and, and to stand on that platform to seek for his kingdom and righteousness in those troubles. He'll tell you how to glorify God in those troubles then. But what are you supposed to focus on today? Today's what? Today's troubles. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Focus on God's call in your life, in your trouble for today. In other words, here's how you live the worry-free life in the midst of a trouble-plagued life, okay? How do you live worry-free in the midst of trouble, a trouble-plagued life? You, you do that by seeking God's kingdom moment by moment, trouble by trouble, concern by concern, responsibility by responsibility. And in that, you don't have time to worry because you're focused on seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness in your troubles, in your concerns, in your difficulties. So there's no time to worry. Well, what if I have a big project? PJ, you say, each day has enough trouble of its own, but I have a, a, I have a big project that's like a six-month worry. So for me right now, you could apply it to you, but for me, I have, this, I have a big trouble of writing, writing to finish my doctoral project. That's not a one-day trouble. That's a lot of days of trouble. So how do, I, how, do I, how do I apply it to some trouble that's not focused on today? Here's how, here's how you do it. You break down the big trouble into daily troubles. And you say, what is my focus for today? That's what we do, that's what I, that's what we do with parenting. That's what you're doing, I think, with retirement. Right? Um, <laughs> I need to be doing that myself. But what, what, what do you do with parenting or with, with discipling each other in this church? What do we do? We can't help each other grow 
in one sermon or with one insight and everyone grows perfectly in Christ, do we? No, we just handle what's in front of us. Today, I have a discipleship moment. I'm going to disciple somebody this moment. And that's all I can worry about. I can't worry about discipling my kids for the next 10 years. I can only work, worry about discipling them for the next 10 minutes. And if I focus on these 10 minutes of discipling them, and I do that for the, every 10 minutes after this, the 10 years will take care of itself, won't it? So you take the big trouble, the big task, the big concern, and you break it up into daily troubles. And then Jesus says, each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow's troubles. Worry about that tomorrow or focus on it tomorrow. Today, focus on today's trouble. I hope that makes sense. Internalize these eight reasons so that you stop worrying and advance God's kingdom. What are these eight reasons? You are enslaved to God. Stop worrying because you're enslaved to God, because you're made for greatness, because you're more valuable than birds, because you're sensible, you're served, you're known, you're supplied, and you're responsible. You're responsible. So therefore, stop worrying. Now, what are we responsible to do? I already said it. It's in verse 33. What are we responsible to do? Seek first the what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. Okay, so we need to answer some questions here before we close. I need to make this practical. What does it mean to seek the kingdom of God, right? I got to answer this question. What is the kingdom of God? It's not just some future thing that's going to happen when Jesus returns. It is that. That's the consummation of the kingdom. But the kingdom is still here to be sought today. How do you seek first the kingdom of God today in today's troubles? Well, what is the kingdom of God? Answer, the kingdom of God, and you have to get this, brothers and sisters, because if you don't know what it is, you can't seek it. The kingdom of God is, his sinner is God's sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule over you and through you in this world or in his realm, the king's realm, but in this world, okay? So what is the kingdom of God? It's God's sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule over us and through us into this world. So just to make that practical, if it's discipling each other in the church or reaching your non-Christian friend with the gospel, what do, how, how do I seek first the kingdom? So, so as I'm interacting with my neighbor who's not a Christian, I'm thinking, how can I, how can I be under God's sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule? And how can God's sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule come through me to my neighbor as we hang out? One of my neighbors recently just invited me to go to a gun show. You know, there's a gun show in Orange County. Hey, let's go to the gun show. I'd love to go with you to the gun show. But if I'm going to seek first God's kingdom in it, how can I bring, how can I submit to God's sinner saving, curse reversing rule in my life as I go to the gun show? And how can I, how can um, God's sinner saving, curse reversing rule come through me in my interactions with my neighbor at the gun show? You see? You get that? Or if it's a worry, is it a financial worry? Okay, I got financial worries. I'm in debt. What do I do? I feel so worried about my debt. Well, how do I submit to God's sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule as I think about my debt today? And how can I exercise God's sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule? How can it come through me in the way I pay off my debt so that I can be more financially free to use my money generously to store up treasures in heaven and bless other people with the gospel? You see that? You have to connect your concerns to the sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule of God. And the sinner-saving curse rule of God over you and through you has to come, not second, but first in your life. First in your family. First in your church. First in your finances. First in your time. First in your work. First in your health. First in everything. Because if it's not first, it's not the kingdom. And Jesus is not the king. You're the king. Because God is second to your kingship. So, we need to seek God's kingdom first. First. 
We need to make his sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule and agenda the focus and priority of our lives moment by moment, concern by concern, responsibility by responsibility. You're saying, well, what does it mean to, to seek his kingdom in this situation? Well, he gives us one guardrail. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's never okay to sin to seek God's kingdom. Okay, so don't sin in seeking God's kingdom. I'm not going to sin with my friends to convince them to follow Jesus. That doesn't make sense. You need to do it in, in seeking his righteousness as you're seeking his kingdom. So how do we do this? We subordinate and connect everything in our lives to the king and the kingdom commission. Do you know what the kingdom commission is? It says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm the king, Jesus says. Go therefore and what? Disciple all nations. In the name of baptizing them and in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I commanded you. That's the kingdom commission. So how do I seek first the kingdom of God in all my worries and concerns? Tie it to the king, Jesus, honor Jesus, and serve him in his great commission. Everything you do is a great commission activity, a kingdom commission activity. And when you disconnect it from that commission of discipling, then you're going to be overwhelmed by worry. So, let me answer two intellectual objections here. One for those who are Christian and one for those who are not Christian. If you're a Christian, maybe you're saying, okay, Jesus says he's going to provide not only clothing, but my what? Food, right? So here's a question. What about Christians who die of starvation? What about Christians who are locked in a cell and they say, deny Jesus and you'll be free? And if you don't, you're going to starve to death. And they actually starve to death. Is this passage true? I mean, God cares for the persecuted Christian more than the birds, right? So they're dying of starvation. Is Matthew 6 not true for him? You feel the tension there? What does that mean? If God provides food so that we're eating, this brother in Christ or sister in Christ is dying in prison because of persecution, and God's letting it happen. I thought Matthew 6 means God cares about the brother or sister in prison. Well, some people say, I don't agree with this answer. Some people, some commentators will limit this application of this passage. They say, oh, well, what this means is that if as Christians seek God's kingdom, and this is true, if Christians seek God's kingdom and they do it, they're going to seek it with their church family, right? Right. And if they seek it with their church family, when that church member who's always seeking God's kingdom first comes into needs, guess who's going to help them? Their church family. I have no doubt not because I'm the pastor of this church, I think, but I think because I have relationships with most of our church members here that are meaningful. I mean, they're all meaningful, but I, have, I think I have somewhere where um, my wife and I feel really valued by, by Christians inside and out this church, outside this church. If my family got into a dire need, I'm pretty sure God would help with other Christian family coming around our family. I'm, om- I'm, I'm, I'm sure of that. And so some people apply that this way and say, well, if you keep seeing God's kingdom first, you're going to build deeper kingdom relationships. And then when you're in need, the other kingdom families are going to come help you. I think that's true. But that doesn't really satisfy the objection in my heart about the dying Christian who's starving in the jail cell still. So my answer to that is, well, so if you're asking, well, does God care about that person dying of starvation? What's the answer to that? Does God care? Yes or no? Yes. Well, doesn't it say God's going to supply all our needs? Is God going to supply all our, all our needs? Yes or no? Yes. Is God supplying that person food as they're about to die of starvation? No. So then what's the answer? Well, the answer is that person's greatest need is not for food. That person's greatest need is to die 
faithfully for the Lord, honoring the Lord as a testimony to the truth of the gospel. Now, we might not like that answer, but that's the right answer. And not only is it the right answer, think about this. What, why does God give us troubles anyway? Why does God meet our needs? It's the platform that, so that we would seek first what? The kingdom of God and, our, and his righteousness. In other words, our greatest need is to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. That's the greatest need. And God will starve me if he has to for me to honor him in seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. And as Christians, what did Jesus say? If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross. Deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And God will call us into suffering. But that suffering is never purposeless. That suffering is so that his kingship will be exalted and we will be satisfied. Because that starving brother who dies of starvation in the prison cell, once he's dead, he does not regret that for one moment. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And he will receive a reward for that suffering in that prison. For the, for the aches in his stomach as he died. He will receive a, a reward for that suffering. And he will not regret it one bit. Because God has always met his need. From the moment of conception all the way to death. Because he's more valuable than birds. Even though God feeds birds, he doesn't feed him because that's his greatest need, to seek God's kingdom first. And your greatest need is to seek God's kingdom first, more than eating and drinking. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might say, okay, PJ, this is why I could never be a Christian, because how can a good, powerful God allow suffering in this world? If God is good and loving, why does he allow suffering? Let me give you a brief answer to that. If, and sometimes this could get emotional. I'm mad at God. Because God allowed suffering in this world and in my life, and so how dare God do that? If he's so loving, how dare you make me suffer? Two responses to this, and I admit this is not a full answer. The Bible doesn't give us a full answer, so here's our best half answer. But it's the best, it's a better answer than any other answer that's out there in the world. Part one to the answer is this. If God is big enough for you to be mad at for not helping you and not solving your evil, then God is big enough to have a reason for your suffering that you can't understand. And if you're saying, no, God, you're not big enough for me to have a reason I can't understand. I'm as big as you. I'm as big as you. I deserve to know why I'm ha having these troubles. If you think you're as big as God, then you're equal to God. So don't be mad at God. Use your own power to solve the suffering because you're equal to God. But if God's bigger than you, then don't be mad at him for having a reason for your suffering that you can't understand. You can't have it both ways. Are you equal to God or is he bigger than you? If he's bigger than you, then submit to his bigness by saying, okay, maybe you have a reason that I can't understand. Or if you're going to say yourself you're equal to him, then don't be mad at him because you're an equal God, so do your thing. Now, that's an intellectual answer. I understand that that might not help with those who are actually suffering. But here, here's one that might help in that. Here's part two. God is not indifferent to your suffering in this world. God, the Christian God, the true God, is not like other gods. Other gods might say they are sympathetic, but we know God is sympathetic because God doesn't just say he cares about your suffering. He entered into our world of suffering. He took on human flesh. He became a man. He took on the temptations of sin. He took on the temptations of hunger. He took on the temptations of bereavement. He took on the temptations of abandonment and discouragement. He took on all that, and then he went to the cross, and he actually took on the wrath of God. He died for sinners and rose from the dead. He suffered for our sins, even though he didn't deserve any of that suffering. And so because of that, don't think, 
Christian friend or non-Christian friend, don't think that God doesn't care about suffering. He cares about your suffering. He enters into it. He meets you in suffering. So I encourage you not to deny Jesus because of that. Now, if anyone had reason to worry in this world about suffering, who, who had most reason to worry? Jesus, right? I mean, imagine you're, you're born, and then your parents tell you, hey, do you know angels sang when you were born? And do you know I was a virgin when I gave birth to you? He's like, what? And, did you, and then as Jesus gets older, do you know that, that you're supposed to be the son of God and this Messiah? What? And so they start teaching him scripture. He's reading the Bible. He starts reading, oh, I'm the son of David. Wait, I'm the son of Abraham. Wait, I'm supposed to, I'm the seed of the woman who's going to crush Satan's head. Imagine discovering that as a child or, you know, as you're growing up. And as you discover that growing up, you start to really embrace it, right? Because Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Jesus didn't know everything in, in his human form as he was. He, he, he um, subjected that to, to his humanity. As he, as he started to realize it, he started to tell his disciples, hey, guys, I'm going to die one day, and then I'm going to rise. And did they encourage him at his three predictions? No. They rejected him. Then now you're rejected by your friends. And then Jesus gets to the garden and he's praying, let this cup pass from me. He's worried and God denies him his request. And then he goes to the cross and then he gets abandoned by God. If anyone had the right to worry about the future, see, we worry about hypotheticals in our future, right? Jesus wasn't worrying about hypotheticals. He knew what was gonna happen. If anyone had the right to worry about tomorrow's troubles, it's Jesus. But did he worry? No, just day by day, he sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's why we can be saved today. Because he was faithful to not worry, but to obey God moment by moment, all the way to the most excruciating of moments, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus was faithful. And he rose from the dead to save us. So to close, brothers and sisters, don't worry, but seek first God's kingdom. Internalize these reasons for not worrying <clears throat> and seek his kingdom today and moment by moment. If you don't, you'll be dominated by worry and you'll be neutralized for God's great commission, the kingdom commission. But if you can seek God's kingdom first, you will rise above your troubles and you'll glorify God in your troubles, moment by moment, trial by trial. So may our joy flourish in enjoying God as we advance his kingdom through the troubles of our lives. Let's pray.